Greetings, everyone. My name is John Tarwater, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace Baptist Church. And if you're new to Grace, uh, we're going through a study right now on the book of Matthew, and this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Brother Trent began to set up for us kind of what the structure of the book of Matthew looks like. And there we talk about there's these five major sections or groupings of teachings by Jesus Christ. Uh, we can call them discourses. We can call them teaching material. We just, I, I call them sermons here for you. Uh, there the sections in your Bible that if you have one of these old red letter editions of the Bible, it's the chapters that are mostly read. It's the chapters that Jesus is doing all of the teaching in. Now, there's another way to recognize them. There's also these uh, summary statements uh, in between. Sermon 1, we see, when Jesus had finished his teaching, or after another sermon, when Jesus had finished these sayings, when Jesus had finished these parables, and as readers of the Word, we began to recognize these uh, clues of the author that we're heading into a different section. Now, the book of Matthew is more than five disjointed sermons, if you will. There's also these narrative sections in between. But these narrative sections aren't merely, merely filler material. Rather, they serve as a purpose. In one regard, they illustrate the sermon that has just been finished or the deep the teaching material that Jesus had just finished. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, the primary topic is the kingdom of God. Matthew uh, begins to lay out there in chapter 5, what are the characteristics or the character traits of the kingdom citizens? He then goes to talk about what are the practices of the kingdom citizens. They, they're both salt and they're light. We talk about what about the righteousness of the kingdom? He says it must surpass that of the Pharisees. But when he gets to the end of the sermon, if I can call it that, there's this summary statement about, and he teaches as one who has authority. You know, what does he mean by this? Well, to some degree, he's saying he teaches like it's his kingdom. <laughs> he teaches like he's the king. And so then when we go into this first narrative section, uh, the narratives illustrate what it means to teach with authority. So in fact, what we see is that he heals a leper, the lame are made to walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, and a person is raised from the dead. He is the king. In fact, when we get to next chapter, chapter 11, John the Baptist is going to ask, is he the expected one? Is he that long-awaited king who will not disappoint? To which Jesus responds, well, the Deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see, and the dead are raised. Jesus' response is, it's a demonstration of who he is. And so these, these narrative materials, to some degree, they look back and they illustrate what has just happened. But on the other side, they carry the story along and they introduce to us the next theme. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And he says, pray that God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, there's still work to be done. And as Jesus is ministering to the people, he looks out in the passage we read last week from Matthew chapter 9. It says, and Jesus had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
In fact, he uses another metaphor. He says they're like a crop of grain that is ready for harvesting. All that we need are a group of workers to go out and get them. So he says, pray to the Father. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. This brings us to chapter 10. And supposedly, the disciples did what Jesus asked. Uh, supposedly they prayed that God would send out workers. And when we get to Matthew chapter 10, God sends out 12 new workers into the field. And Jesus identifies for us here who those are. He says, Jesus summoned the 12 disciples. Those who were praying were the ones who were sent out. Now notice the difference here too between verse 1 and verse 2. They were called the 12 disciples in verse 1. And for the first time in the text, we see they're called the 12 apostles. <clears throat> what Jesus is doing here is he's starting to identify for us a change in the nature of their ministry. They were moving from disciples, learners of Jesus, to apostles, those who are sent out. Not just sent out, but those who are sent with the authority of the one who is going. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, the author refers to Jesus as an apostle. He was one who was sent by the Father with the authority of the Father. Here the apostles are being sent out with the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we sum it this way. Jesus summoned, he, he called the twelve, and then true to their name, apostles, he, he sent them out. In many ways, the disciples are learning what we have seen throughout all of history. That it is impossible to pray honestly and passionately for the needs of others. It's impossible to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out new workers or to pray with all your heart that God be exalted and worshipped by all peoples in all places, but then add to your prayer, but Lord, not with me. When we begin to pray for God's work around the world and for those serving in foreign places, God begins to do a work in our heart and he can draw us to a more radical involvement. Indeed, it's what we see here in the, uh, the book of Philippians, that Paul, he was thanking the churches of Macedonia, in particular the church of Philippi, for, for all of their work for him. They had sent money, they had provided for him financially. He said they were praying for him, and in fact, he attributed much of their success on the ministry to their prayers. But then at the end of chapter 2, Paul says they sent one of their own brethren, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to minister to Paul while he was in prison. Here's the point. At some times in ministry, praying is not enough. Someone has to go. And here's what the disciples had learned. That with innocent, when we combine intercessory prayer with the compassion for the harvest, it often leads to someone going. We combine intercessory prayer with a heart of compassion for the people, it often leads to going. Jesus called, commissioned his disciples, and secondly, he equipped them. And here's the way it says it in verse 1. He says, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This authority is the same authority that we saw at the end of chapter 7. It's the same authority that was illustrated for us in chapters 8 and 9. In essence, Jesus is saying the disciples are going to mimic his ministry. They're going to teach his message, and they're going to demonstrate uh, his authority. 
And they're going out with that same authority as they head out. Now, in verses 5 through 15, Jesus uh, moves to a different section and begins to send them out with some instructions. And we're not surprised here that in, if you recall back in Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus looked out and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And the disciples were praying that God would send someone to those sheep. And so we're not surprised here in chapter 10 that when Jesus sends them out, the instructions are to a particular field, namely the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This would be the initial phase of the advancement of the gospel of God's kingdom. Now, it's not as if Jesus only ministered among the Jews. Indeed, as we look throughout the rest of the gospel ministries, for example, John chapter 4, we see that he had a powerful ministry among the Samaritans there. But here at the beginning, his heart beats for the people of Israel. Now, likewise, when we look at God's call on Abraham, we see his heartbeat for the Jewish nation, but it says there in verse 3 of chapter 12 in the book of Genesis that they were to become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. I think the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans hammers this point home very well, that God has a heartbeat for the people of Israel and a heartbeat for the nations. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the nations, if you will. He calls the people to a particular field, but he also calls them to a particular mission strategy. The strategy of missions for this initial group of apostles was the same strategy that Jesus was using. It was preaching the kingdom and ministering to the physical and felt needs of the people. Now here we say, verse 7, as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Recall that in, again, as readers of the book of Matthew, we're not surprised by this. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, it says, began his ministry by saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, begins his ministry. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now Jesus is sending out his disciples. Their message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom has broken into history. It was just a couple of weeks back when Jeremy was preaching through Matthew chapter 5. He explained to us at that time that when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's people in God's place, under God's rule. The kingdom of God, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. What does it take to become part of God's people? That king that we have been talking about, the one who will not disappoint, in his sovereignty, he must redeem us from the power of sin. And when that redemption begins to take place in our heart, we begin to live under that king's rule as kingdom citizens. And the way Jesus describes this kingdom citizenship, it's in no way onerous, but rather he describes it in chapter 5 as the blessed life. Blessed are those who live like this. And here's the deal. The message and the preaching of those first disciples, as well as their descendants, you and me, it has not changed. When we go out, we still preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Redemption is possible for you. Living under his rulership is possible for you today. 
it is possible for you to experience that blessed state today. There's salvation in no other name. So when the disciples are going out, they preach the kingdom, and then secondly, they minister to the physical, and I say the felt needs of the people. He said, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out the demons. In other words, they are performing the same kinds of miraculous things that Jesus was doing in chapters 8 and 9. When we flip over to Acts chapter 5, the passage that we read today, in verse 12, it says that in the lives of the apostles, they were doing many signs and wonders among them, so much so that the people were bringing those who were sick, those who were lame, and putting them on cots and mats, hoping that at least the shadow of, G of Peter might fall upon them. They were performing the very miracles and ministry that Christ had called them to do. Here we are some 2,000 years removed, but our mission strategy has not changed. Whether or not we are ministering to people groups off the islands of Indonesia, or whether or not we are making, uh, preaching to the inner city missions of Dayton and refugees there, we have compassion and caring hearts while we preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Redemption is possible and living a blessed life. Now, pause for a moment and think here. <laughs> what if the disciples were to charge people for performing these miraculous ministries? <laughs> I mean, what a way to fund your ministry. Yeah. I mean, we know people flock to that. We know what the health, wealth, and gospel ministry looks like today. We know actually what happened in the book of Acts. People are attracted to these healing and uh, miraculous type ministries. But Jesus warns them here at the very beginning of this financial greed that might slip in. And so he says, freely you received, freely you give. <laughs> in other words, he's, Jesus is saying this, don't, don't be guilty of looking for that financial windfall that could be yours on account of the equipping that I'm giving you. Not only does he seem to remove here at the very beginning the possibility of funding their ministry miraculously, he goes on to say, don't take any gold, silver, copper, all sorts of stuff. In missiological language, we say it this way. He tells the missionary to travel lightly. Uh, this is a picture of me on the day that our family landed in Guatemala. Before we left, we had, like many missionaries, we had garage sales where we felt like we sold everything we owned. We sold our vehicles. A library of some 2,000-plus books was reduced down to a couple of bags of books. Our children, they sold their toys, except for a couple of small ones, Herman the Worm, that they could fit in, in a bag. And then we packed up everything in these, what we call them action packers, these, I don't know, you can hardly tell, these little black Rubbermaid uh, containers. It was all we had. Two, two um, vans came to pick us up. This is one of the missionaries that met us at the airport. One van for our stuff and one van for the tribe, if you will, uh, the people. Now, why is it that missionaries travel lightly? Well, to some degree, it's merely practical. It would be expensive for us to 
take our stuff from here and transfer it there. I, mean, I think they charge us something like $50 per container, even when we are going at the time. Uh, the second reason, I believe it's a hindrance, possibly, to the people that we're going to minister among. That we would, depending on our, our place of, of service, that kind of a lifestyle would hinder that message. But I really believe that in Jesus' teaching here, there's a more important lesson. And here he says it this way at the end of verse 10. The worker is worthy of his support. Uh, God is going to provide. But one of the ways that he is providing is from the people among whom you're ministering. And it is difficult, I can tell you, it is difficult as a missionary to go out and to have that kind of dependence upon the Lord. But I believe that's the message here of Matthew chapter 10. Now, here's part of the application for us. Not only, not only is God telling us to travel lightly as missionaries, but perhaps he's saying to us here that we might need to live lightly. We can be guilty of accumulating so much stuff, including debt, that it becomes a hindrance to us being able to respond to God's call to what he's doing around the world. Not just a, a hindrance to you going, but a hindrance to you even supporting what God is doing around the world. We're called to travel lightly. We're called to live lightly. So here's what Jesus has been doing. He's called and commissioned, equipped his disciples. He has sent them out, and now he's kind of having a reality check. <laughs> and he begins to warn the people that perhaps the world will not be treating them so well where they go. They will treat them harshly. Look here, verse 23, he says, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Whenever seems to promise that it's coming. I remember when we were preparing to go into Guatemala, and we had lived in Costa Rica, and Costa Rica, again, being new to the Central and South America, at the time we thought, okay, all these Spanish-speaking countries are just alike. You know, if, if you grew up liking, you know, Mexican food, boy, you're going to love Costa Rica. Yeah? And you get there, like, nobody eats spicy food. Uh, and apparently no sugar in their peanut butter or anything either. But, but Costa Rica was a great place to live. We never had a car. We, we walked everywhere. We'd ride the bus and so forth. So we're preparing to go to Guatemala. And they were talking about, you know, what kind of vehicle will you get for your family? I said, we probably won't have one. We'll just ride the bus and walk. <laughs> and they're like, not in Guatemala. <laughs> Guatemalans don't even want to get on the bus there, you know? And so in the mission, they start preparing us for what security looks like on the mission field. They said, if, you know, somebody should ever be uh, kidnapped or whatever, here's kind of how we handle it. Well, then we get this security alert about six months in said, hey, um, if something should happen, here's the policy we have in place for taking care of it. Shortly before we left, they're like, when one of your children gets kidnapped, here's how we're going to approach. And, and start, wow, what a dangerous place. And here the, Jesus says he's getting ready to send them out. He says, hey, whenever this occurs, uh, here's what's supposed to happen. Almost promising that this kind of hardship is coming to them. And this harsh reality is coming from all sorts of quarters. We see it from the civil and the religious authorities. From the religious side, he's telling them they will face scourgings in the synagogue. And indeed, we see this with the Apostle Paul and 
James and Peter and others as we move through uh, the New Testament. But not just from religious authorities. He says they'll be bringing you before the governors and kings. It's a, it's a threat of incarceration, if you will. And again, we saw this in Guatemala. As you know, most of Central and South America is, is a Catholic country. Whether people are practicing Catholics or not, everybody's Catholic. I'll just say it that way. And they don't care that we have an evangelical ministry taking place in, in their neighborhoods and in their, their cities. But in uh, one of the barrios right outside of uh, Guatemala, we began to have some serious uh, effect, and uh, effective ministry. And as a result, the Catholic Church really came down hard on all the citizens in the area. Uh, we see this kind of persecution. He says it'll come from civil and religious authorities, but it'll also come perhaps from those closest to you, your family. Look at these words. Brother will betray brother, father, his child, children, and their parents. It's coming from every quarter. When I was a um, freshman in uh, college, I went to a, a military institution in South Carolina known as the Citadel. <laughs> few years and a few pounds ago. <laughs> um, but during that freshman year, I really began to struggle with God's call upon my life, believing that God had truly called me not only to the ministry, but to serve him in foreign places. Now, as a freshman at, a, at that institution, the Citadel, uh, we were not allowed to have vehicles. You weren't allowed to go home in either your first or second semester. But during my first year, we had a hurricane that came across uh, South Carolina. Hurricane Hugo and it just wiped out the, the campus, uh, wiped out uh, most of Charleston and a good portion of, of central um, South Carolina. And so I found myself back at the house, surprised, you know, for a, as a freshman in, at the military school. It was during that time I decided to share with my parents this call that I believe God was having on my life. Now, my parents up to this time, they'd been quite supportive for me already. Even as a high school student, I'd been given many opportunities to preach in our local church, to preach at events in our community. I had the opportunity to, to go on some mission trips to Chile and other places. And so I can see myself now almost 35 years removed standing or sitting with my family in that living room. I can still see where each person was sitting as I shared with them their news that I believe God was calling me to minister in a foreign setting. My mom began to cry. My dad began to enumerate to me all the reasons that this was not a good choice. I disappointed him. He said, son, you'll never get married. You'll never have kids. <laughs> he wasn't a prophet, was he? <laughs> The next day, one of my, the men in my company, uh, he'd come to pick me up and we started our six-hour trek back to campus. I don't have to tell you what I was thinking about. Uh, the way I was raised, you would never do anything to disappoint one of your parents. But I couldn't help but believe that I had really betrayed my parents with, with what I'd announced to them. But I still struggled with this reality in my life of what I sensed to be God's calling. And so in due time, I decided if indeed I'm going to serve God on the mission field, perhaps the military school is not the best place. And so I 
decided to transfer to a small Baptist college. And so I called up my, my parents and told my dad I, I'd transferred, and uh, he refused to come and pick me up, hoping that I would change my mind, stay at the school, and graduate and do something, as he would say, useful with my life. Let me summarize the story this way. <laughs> when you make a decision to serve Christ in ministry or a foreign place, there's a cost. It can cost you with your family. And there's people here today that you're considering this. You know, perhaps you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. <laughs> and when you go to share with one of your parents this news, it may go over just like it did with my parents. There is hostility from every side. And so Jesus summarizes it this way. He says, you will be hated by all. Now, I don't believe that Jesus was saying at this time that everyone's going to hate you, but he was, I think, communicating this truth, that there's going to be hostility from every quarter of life. So Jesus is warning them. Now, imagine this. What he has said is that uh, there's a chance that you will be incarcerated. There's a chance that you will be separated from your family. In verse four, uh, 14, he's already said that there will be people who reject your message. Verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I don't have to tell you that's not much of a battle. Uh, but later, he's going to begin to encourage them. But before he does that, he says this. He says, look at how they treated me. Not only will the world treat you harshly, they're going to treat you like me. As disciples, they are not above their teacher. He says, consider how they've treated me. He said, they said that I cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons, whom later scripture refers to as Beelzebul. In other words, Jesus says, they're calling me the devil. And if they treat your master this way, how do you think they're going to treat you? Jesus is warning them. They're going to treat you like me. And so having given them this warning of incarceration, hostility, comparing them to sheep, how would you have felt hearing that news? Perhaps fear coming across you. And so Jesus begins to encourage them. He says, do not fear those who execute earthly judgment. That'd be my summary statement. He says, do not fear them. Do not fear them. Three times, 26, 28, 31, do not fear them. This is a difficult command. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we prayed for one of our own brothers here in our church that we believed was walking headlong into this kind of a reality. We know people today serving God in difficult places. And so Jesus begins to encourage them, not by just don't fear, but he says, have this eternal perspective. Think about things eschatologically. For there is nothing concealed that will be revealed. There's nothing hidden that won't, as he would say, be known or come to light. I believe in this statement, what he's actually doing is referring to that future judgment. When the righteous king will execute perfect justice. Right now, there's things that are happening that people think they're doing in secret. He says, it'll be made known. 
You might be going through difficult times now, but in the end, the righteous judge will make it right. Now notice he doesn't say, don't worry, they won't hurt you. Indeed, he says, they seem like they're going, don't worry about the ones who can kill you. He seems to be promising that that kind of hardship is in fact coming. So how else does he encourage them? Here is um, Polycarp, a follower of Christ uh, who died in A.D. 155. He was threatened to being burned at the stake uh, unless he denied Christ and worshipped the emperor. So a famous quote here by Polycarp. He says, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? Powerful statement. But look at the second part of this quote. He says, you threaten a fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while it's quenched for you. For you do not know the fire of the future judgment and of the eternal punishment which is reserved for the unbeliever. Why do you delay? Do what you will. Polycarp says, I am confident that there's going to be a future judgment. And in that judgment, there's going to be people who experience an eternal punishment. And I have far greater fear of that than I do any execution on this earthly side. And that leads us to the second point. In other words, he says, don't fear the one who executes earthly judgment, but trust the one who executes eternal judgment. He says, do not fear the one who kills the body but is unable to kill the soul, but fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, why would this be encouraging? He says it this way. He says, because the Father promises you his presence. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? That's the textual way of saying they're pretty cheap. They really could be sold for a cent. They're not worth anything. And he said, and yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. He's there. And he cares. Or he says, consider the Father's promised care and love. Consider the number of hairs on your head. See, most of us, we couldn't count the hairs on our head. Although some would be easier than others. But most of us wouldn't even try. But here's Jesus' point. He said the Father would. The Father would. Because the Father cares not just about the smallest of creatures, the sparrow. He's concerned about the smallest of details, the number of hairs upon your head. He promises his presence and his care. Let me finish that story I started a few minutes ago. When I was a freshman in college, I shared with my parents my desire to go to the mission field. It was 12 years later that my wife and I were preparing to go on the mission field. We had been in conversation with a uh, mission agency. I was finishing my doctoral work, and we knew that the time had come that we would need to share this information with our parents. But I dreaded that story. Twelve years removed, I had not forgotten what it was like to sit in the recliner and speak to my parents on that couch. So Sheila, she had asked me, she said, 
so have you told your parents yet? And I said, no, it's, it's not ever really come up well. <laughs> it's never seemed like the right time. I said, if my mom ever asked me or dad, I'll tell them, you know. So it's like that night I call my parents and my mom says, hey, have you thought about what you're going to do after graduation? You're like, seriously? <laughs> so there was my opening. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have. Before I could say anything, my mom said, please don't tell me you're going to Texas. I said, have I got some good news for you? <laughs> yeah. And so I began to share with my parents how we were planning on moving to Costa Rica in preparation for serving God in Mexico. Uh, the next day, I received a call from my younger brother, uh, whose name is Joe, who's often an encourager to me. And he, he says, hey, I heard you and Sheila have some news. And I said, yeah, yeah. We're, I began to tell him some of the plans that we were making. And I said, hey, by the way, Did dad ever say anything? He said, yeah. Dad got the family together. And he set us all in the living room. And he said, listen, guys, we've known for some time that John was going to do something like this. And I expect everybody to get behind him and support him. See, we have a father who promises his presence and his care and his love. And at times when we're preparing for gospel ministry, we have to make heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stories. And sadly, not every story will end as positively or as nicely as mine. My parents came full circle. They supported us. They came and visited us when we were in Costa Rica. My dad went on a mission trip with his local church to Guatemala while I was there. I was able to take them to the prison systems, you know, of Guatemala. They support us the entire time we were on the field financially because my God cares. My God was with me. My God was with my father. Trust the one who can execute eternal judgment. If God's going to be executing his judgment, in the end, the question is, on which side will you be? Or better, whose side will you be? It's interesting that Jesus finishes this second sermon, chapter 10, in a way that is similar to the ending of his first sermon. If you recall back in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gave us a whole series of doublets, is what I call them. That is, he talked about two ways, the broad way and the narrow way. He talked about two uh, houses or two foundations, one's on rock, one's on shifting sand. Two trees, there's one that bears, one that bears bad fruit. And the way that the, the, the gospel is, is drawn together, it is assumed that all the kingdom citizens choose the same choices. As kingdom citizens, we choose the narrow way. We choose the good fruit. We build on the house that is on the rock and not the shifting sands. And so as he comes to this end of the text, he gives us these choices again. And he says, in fact, he's saying, hey, in the midst of these hardships and hostilities that are coming, Will you trust me? Will you acknowledge me? Will you confess me? And there's a cost if you don't. <laughs> but then there's a reward if you do. I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And again, the narrative is put together in a way to assume that the gospel's 
the, the kingdom citizens will all choose to confess Jesus Christ. Or he comes to the next one, love Christ or family and self. Now look at the way he sets this up. Do not think, do not suppose, that's his way of saying, don't be confused about who I am and what my purpose is. Do not think that I came to bring peace. Well, you might be confused on that one. We call him the Prince of Peace. But I really thought he was bringing peace. Well, he was. But the peace is not merely the absence of conflict. His primary purpose was to make peace between us and the Father. The Father was pouring out his wrath upon all unrighteousness or disobedience, if you will. And he came to make peace with that. But in doing that, he's making war against the evil one. There's going to be divisions. And it seemed like everywhere Jesus went, there were these kinds of divisions. People are asking, it doesn't seem like he keeps the Sabbath. There's a division. He eats and stays with sinners and tax collectors. There's a division. And then the disciples, in following his ministry, they seem to have those same kind of divisions. Luke, writing in Acts chapter 17, says they're turning the world upside down. It's not working the way we anticipated. Those divisions will even be among those that are closest to us. So he brings up the family again. Man against his father, the daughter, his mother, or we can say the members of his household. So in the end, Jesus asks, you love me or your family the most? And he goes on down to verse 38 here. Look at this. He says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy. You might have to love Christ more than you love yourself. Indeed, this is what the Apostle Paul is claiming in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, there he's writing, he says, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ is my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in Christ. It may cost you your life. But he says, hey, I count that as nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Indeed, he compares it here in Matthew chapter 13 as a, a person who has a treasure and he bears it in the field and he sells everything to go purchase the field. It's, that, it's a treasure that you want. Love Christ more than you love your family or others. And so he comes to the end. The ones he's sending need to be making this choice. Serve Christ or something else. But this last doublet is for the ones who are actually receiving them. If you recall back there at the beginning, he said, you know, don't freely receive, freely you gave. He says, don't take gold, silver, copper. He says, we'll provide the resources. We'll even provide you a place to stay. And in verses 14, 15, 16, he says, when you go to a city, find a person who is worthy and stay there. Like, seriously, how easy is that? I mean, we, we land in Guatemala. You know, Sheila, where are we staying? Oh, let's go knock on doors and see if we can find the worthy person. <laughs> not, not very practical, it doesn't seem like. But here's his message. He says, the ones who receive you, it's like they're receiving the one who sent you. But if they deny you, if they don't receive you, they're rejecting the one who sent you. It'd be better... Uh, for them, more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than in the day of judgment. He's saying it negatively. 
If they don't accept you or your message, then they don't accept me. Positively, he says it this way. If they do receive you, then they receive me. Wow. Here's the deal. Here's our application. Not all of us can go to the ends of the earth. Matt and his family, they served God in Egypt and Jordan. The Lewises served God in Cambodia. The Brooks have served him in Cam, uh, Afghanistan. The Cars in Japan. We have all number of people in this congregation who have served gods at the ends of the earth. And the Crows as they prepare to go. But all of them, all of us would say, we could not go if it was not for the partnership of others like you who faithfully pray for us, who faithfully send others to minister with us, who faithfully provide for us financially. And here he comes to the end of the text and says, who even gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water. The point is that no contribution you make is too small. God can use it and God can honor it. The message of Matthew 10 is simple. Jesus calls, equips, he sends, he warns, he encourages. But here at the end, he's giving us some options. I have actually worked up to the main idea of the text, and is this. Every kingdom citizen is called to kingdom ministry. Some are called to go, but others actually are called to send and to support them through prayers and financial opportunities. What are you doing with the material blessings with which God has blessed you? And how are you supporting those who are going to the ends of the earth? I mean, we're in the midst of harvest season right now. We're in the midst of this harvest offering. And today, if we've got a video, we've got one of our own, a couple of our own, the McDonald's and the Chambers. Listen to their stories as you consider how you can support what God is doing around the world.